0: Today we are in chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, but let me begin with a warning. Because it's really not a feel-good section of scripture. I know we like those passages that just make us feel great, but every now and then comes the warnings. And this is full of warnings. Places we should not go, things we should not do. And apparently, we need lots of warnings. Which is why so many products have warning labels everywhere. Like this one that I saw on the side of a curling iron. This product can burn eyes. I thought that was obvious, but you know, that just tells me not to go curling those eyelashes because I can burn my eyes. Or this one, one of my favorites, found on the side of a wheelbarrow. Not intended for highway use. I guess countless people are injured in wheelbarrow races on Bartow Highway every year, so we got to be careful about that. Warnings actually can mean the difference between life and death. We had a cartridge uh, for a laser printer in our office, and I looked at it, and it said, Do not eat toner. I didn't know that, that needed to be stated, but apparently it does. And one of my favorites on a portable stroller said, Caution, remove the infant before folding the stroller. Or on this shipment of hammers, a warning label that said, may be harmful if swallowed. I mean, who knew swallowing hammers would hurt you? You have to wonder where these labels come from. But I think you know it's because somebody tried to do this. They're warning against things that people have tried to do and then turned around and tried to sue the companies. I don't know if you've thought about it, but Scripture actually has a lot of warning labels as well. Warnings for us that are not silly, but important to anyone who wants to live that abundant life that Jesus talks about. That's what Daniel 5 is. I would call it a tough love chapter where God writes three words to make plain three truths about life. But before we look at the words, let me set the stage for you. It's 539 B.C. and Daniel is now over 80 years old. Remember, he was a teenager when he was taken into captivity in Babylon. It's been a long life. We learn that King Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for about 24 years at this point. The Babylonian Empire, which once was overrunning everything, is now shrinking. In fact, what's left of it is now centered in the city of Babylon. And outside the walls of the city of Babylon is this massive Medo-Persian army. And in the midst of this siege, we read, King Belshazzar had a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. I mean, if you look at scripture, this verse in Daniel 5.1, just a few verses earlier, Nebuchadnezzar was king, and now Belshazzar is king, and you have to ask, what happened? Over a 100 years ago, archaeologists found a record of the events leading up to the seas, the, the seizure of Babylon. This siege that came about didn't just happen, but there was a lot that happened. And we find out about this from an object that was found, a series of objects actually, called the Nabodonidus cylinders. We learned that after Nebuchadnezzar died, his son ruled for about two years, and then he is assassinated by his brother-in-law. The brother-in-law reigns for four years, and then he dies. His young son takes over, reigns for nine months. He is killed by conspirators— I mean, if you look at it, everything is falling apart. And then a man named Nabonidus takes the throne. Now, he's not related to Nebuchadnezzar, but he understands that the persona of Nebuchadnezzar is still dominant in Babylon. So, Nabonidus secures the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar to sit on the throne. That grandson is named Belshazzar, but he's king in name only. It's actually Nabonidus who is running the show in Babylon. As this is unfolding, trouble is brewing. Cyrus, who is king of the Medes and the Persians, is conquering the world. In fact, his army destroys the Babylonian army, which is led by Nabonidus, only 50 miles south of Babylon. The army came and laid siege to the city of Babylon. For four months... They held that city, surrounded it, and Belshazzar, seeing these vast enemy, these armies outside the city walls, decides to throw a party, a really big party. I mean, why not? If you think about it, Babylon is protected by 20 miles of double-lined walls they surround the city. Herodotus, the Greek historian says, that those walls were in many places up to 85 feet high. Or excuse me, 335 feet high, 85 feet wide. How do you punch through a wall like that? There's 250 defensive towers, plus the Euphrates River flows through the city with walls built over it, keeping out invaders. In other words, they have an unlimited water supply. But the Babylonians also were wise about food. They had stored enough food inside the city to feed every resident for 20 years. You begin to understand that throwing a party may not be all that bad. They feel secure. They feel safe. The food, the drink, the musicians, the dancers are all brought out. In fact, they bring out the gold and silver that had been taken from Jerusalem... About 70 years earlier. And from these looted treasures, a goblet is taken. It's filled with wine. And then a toast is offered to the pagan gods of Babylon. Now, this is one of the sacred objects from Jerusalem, now being used to venerate the pagan gods. Everybody begins to join in. It is a feast. There is partying, and that's when the handwriting appears on the wall. It appears as this disembodied hand writing on the wall, and everybody begins to notice it. The words that are written are three different words. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. It literally means numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered way divided. It's an odd thing to be writing on the wall. That's when the party stops. That's when the mood turns serious, because everybody wants to know what these words mean. It's strange enough to have a hand writing on the wall, but what do these words mean? As it happened, the the advisors that before had no clue still had no clue. You remember, they had failed again and again to help Nebuchadnezzar understand, but They didn't know what it meant. It's the queen mother who remembers Daniel. She suggests that somebody get him to help. Now remember, Daniel's about 80 years old at this point, but they bring him. He appears before this King Belshazzar. The king offers him a gold chain, a purple robe, and the third highest position in his kingdom. Daniel says, your majesty, I will help, but you can keep your stuff. He reminds the king that he has already heard these warnings. He's heard them for years. You should remember, says Daniel, the story of your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, who was proud, but God humbled him. He became like a wild beast. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. See, what Daniel is saying is pretty, pretty straightforward. You've mocked God for many years, and king, now the time is up. So Daniel translates for the king. This is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found warning. Paris or Parson, depending on the language you are using, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. What's interesting about this is that historical sources tell us that while Daniel is translating, the enemy is busy diverting the Euphrates River, which allows this Meadow Persian army to walk right into Babylon under the walls on these dry riverbeds. They take over in one night, this very night. Verse 30 of chapter 5. That very night, Belshazzar, king of of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. When the Persians came into the city, the Babylonians called the conquering king our liberator. That should tell you something about how they felt about Belshazzar. That's the history. That's the background. But the question remains, so what? What? I mean, what does this story mean to me, if anything? I mean, is it just something that's interesting to know? Or does it have meaning? I think these words, written on the wall by the hand of God, are actually there for us today. That first word, mene, which means numbered, there's one of those warning labels I told you about. Maybe it would say, Quantities are limited. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Help us to spend them as we should. So maybe you know that your average lifespan, the average lifespan of an American, is about 25,500 days. That sounds like a lot of days, doesn't it? Except I'm learning this. As you get older, they go faster. You know that. So how are you spending your days? I mean, you have a limited quantity. How are you spending them? You can't save them for later. Do you live your life in a way that spends each day well? Do you live your life each day serving yourself or serving God? You see, you may not know how many days you have but you can choose how you live each day. You know that. There is that second word, tekel, simply means weighed. There's another one of those warning labels. It could say the use of these contents will be weighed. First Samuel 2 reminds us that the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. Pretty straightforward. Now notice it doesn't say that your stuff is weighed. How much did you accumulate? It says your deeds, your life is weighed. So think about your deeds. They can be good or they can be bad. Were they to be somehow weighed on a scale, how would your scale balance out? Would it sink on the dark side? Or would the goodness of your life cause that scale to bottom out on the good side. For there is a cumulative weight to your life. So what would yours look like? Now think about that for a moment. What would be the cumulative effect of your life? For we're told that our deeds are weighed. Maybe that leads to another question. What does God value? What's important to God is, is it important or valuable to you as well? So I think that points to how that scale weighs itself out. Then there is that third word, "parson," which means divided. When we live life, our life will have an effect. uh, A division will come forth. Maybe the warning label there could say there are, Warning, there are side effects. You already know this though. For whatever you do has an effect. Good or bad. If you're like me, there are times when you have put your foot in your mouth, you've thought, I mean, spoken before you thought about it. And those are not good things. Other times, spoken well. But everything I do has an effect. Everything you do has an effect. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 7, says, Do not be deceived, for God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. There is this analogy that appears again and again in Scripture, that our lives are like planning something. Something will come out of that. A harvest, let's call it. Several years ago, I shared with you the laws of sowing and reaping. And I think this morning it bears repeating. Here's how it works very simply. You always reap what you sow. If I plant squash, I'm not going to get watermelons, right? Just squash. Let's think about how we live, though. For if I plant anger, jealousy, arrogance... I should not expect to have trust and peace and joy as an outcome. There is, an effect, a division in how we live. Secondly, you always reap more than you sow. I've seen that time and time again. We plant those seeds of that small plant, and we get this bush, this crop that's lush, a lot more than we planted. One seed of corn can yield several on that stalk. Small seeds lead to a big crop. And so it is with life. You can start with a small habit. Not necessarily good, but it starts small. But it can lead to an outcome that can take the rest of your life to overcome. Or conversely, it could be something healthy and good that yields, well, as Scripture says, Something akin to casting your bread upon the waters, for in many days it will return to you. The third aspect of that law is that you always reap later than you sow. What you're saying to that child or that spouse or to your co-workers eventually begins to shape. And one day it will come up. It takes a while for the harvest to be given to us you have to watch it grow for a while but the harvest will come up for good or bad in other words eventually this fruit that you are planting each day will be obvious and at the time of the harvest it is weighed so let me ask you this question are you remembering that there are consequences to every action how you treat people how you speak to people, even how you treat and speak to yourself, your relationship with God. I've noticed that through the pandemic, it's become more convenient for people to stay away. We were in that trend for a while, but people are less likely to come to church to kind of call on God when the bottom falls out, but the rest of the time, well, you need that for something else. There's a consequence to that. There will be a yield to that harvest. I don't think it's going to be healthy in any way. We are finishing up Daniel chapter 5. We're almost to the end of our six-part series. But this morning I want to be perfectly clear. This message is not that we have to do good deeds so that God will love us. Some people draw that inference from that. That is not what this is about. The message is that there are consequences right here, right now, to how you live your life. Your eternal destiny is God's gift. God is merciful. God offers grace. But there is this question, why would I wait and hope that one day it will all come out in the wash, when actually there's a way to avoid today's pain and hurt, today's destruction? If the hand of God were to write on your wall today, what would God write? I mean, that hand was for the Babylonians. Many, many, Tekel Parson. What would God write on your wall? What would God say that you and I need to deal with? For we know that our days are numbered. That the way we love our lives will produce an effect that can be weighed. Are measured what will that effect be good or bad I think the way to approach all of this is what I've been pointing to from the very beginning of this series we can't do it alone Daniel knew that he never depended solely on himself, his own insights, his own wisdom he kept his focus on God and that's what I want you to think about Where is your focus? It begins by letting God into your life. By letting God guide your words, your actions, your thoughts. Lord, guide all that I do. Help me to use every day well. That's a prayer we should all pray. Let me live, Lord, in such a way that when the harvest is gathered in, my life will be a blessing. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be front-page front news. But to live well on God's economy is to reflect God's love and grace, his joy and peace, his mercy. So this morning, I invite you to open the door to let God to deep, deep into your life. Jesus intends to be with us, guiding our hearts in all that we do. But it is always up to you to say yes to that presence, to that love, to God's grace. Let's pray. Thank you for writing on the walls of our hearts, Lord, a message of love and mercy. But as well get our attention in those areas that are not going well, cause us to reform and transform, to live in your grace. That we would know personally how much you love us. And what we say and what we do would be a reflection of that very same love to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a little guy, my mother would give me warnings from time to time. Don't touch the hot stove was one of them. Guess what I did? I mean, I don't know, maybe it's a temptation, but I touched a hot stove. I had a scar on my thumb. It's still there. It's faded over the years. But for years and years and years, that little rise, that calloused area, the scarring from touching that hot stove was there to remind me. I think all of us have reminders of things that we should not have done, that God said, don't go there, don't do that. Those scars perhaps remind us that there is a reason why God wants us to know the abundant life free from the pain and the hurt that sometimes we cause ourselves there's enough out there already we don't need to add to it and so Jesus invites us to follow him to know that abundant loving life that he offers and along the way he says we're not going to go there that hurts we're not going to go over here that destroys it is a narrow way, a narrow gate but it leads to joyful life I pray that we will heed those warnings and then walk with Christ to that golden place of his love. Go now in peace and go in love. Amen.